This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney. Today, we're pleased to welcome on Tim Lyons with Cityside Capital. We're going to be diving into the uh, interesting parts of due diligence when it comes to investing into private placements. Uh, they have kind of an interesting product over at Cityside Capital and the way that they uh, operate. And I think it'd be a great insight to uh, have Tim on today. So Tim, thanks very much for being on with us today. I'd like to kind of get started with uh, maybe a brief introduction of who you are, how you kind of came to be in the position you're in, and uh, we'll kind of go ahead and jump into it from there. Yeah, so uh, I think it's a pretty cool story. I'm a New York City firefighter. I've been doing that for 18 years. Um, was an ER nurse for about 10 years. That was my side hustle. Uh, then along the way, I had three little girls who are now 12, uh, 9, and 4, and working two jobs, uh, trading time for money. Just didn't seem like the right thing to do anymore. Uh, so I got into real estate. Uh, first, I was a you know uh, owner. Uh, my first property was a three unit, um, had proof of concept, wanted to go bigger, faster. So I got into the commercial space. Uh, really loved multifamily. Uh, have now since gone into you know majority multifamily, over six thousand units, and self storage, and also industrial triple net leases. Uh, and today we have Cityside Capital. It's me and my brother Greg. Uh, I'm in New York. He's in Virginia. And it's a we're, we're a registered rep, we're I'm sorry we're registered representatives of a broker dealer that focuses on private placement investments for retail investors, 1031 exchange investors, and institutional capital uh, for um, you know commercial real estate deals. Yeah, absolutely, and it's kind of an interesting concept because so many people. You know, we've had on plenty of people that are syndicators that come on here and they have, you know, a particular deal they put together. They're having kind of one thing. We've had, you know, pooled investment fund providers on here talking about, you know, the benefits of doing that. Um, you know, the the nature of what you have at CitySide Capital is a little bit divergent from that and it's kind of unique in how it operates. So maybe give us kind of like a again, kind of a thirty thousand foot view of exactly what you put together because it's kind of interesting. It's the first, you know, people I've talked to that kind of put together something like this in the private space, um, you know, focus on this market. I've seen it for other, maybe more of the startup and the in the tech industry, but on focus on more of the real estate, the, you know, industrial, triple net, that kind of thing. Um, it's a little bit uh, unique to your, your market. So Alex, when somebody has capital to deploy, um, so a lot of times they have a quote unquote guy, right? They have a financial guy that they or girl that they talk to and they basically get, get tucked into a uh, ETF or a mutual fund or something like that, right? Um, but on the inside of everybody, they kind of think they should be doing something in real estate. I want to do real estate, but I don't understand it. You know, where do I go? How do I start? Ah, you know, I'm not going to do it. And it kind of, you know, for me at least, it always, you know, um, caused a little bit of anxiety, that pit in your stomach. Like, I want to get into real estate. So, when it comes to passive investing in real estate, um, you know, how do you know who to work with? You know, how do you know what a good operator is? How do you know what a good market is? How do you know what a good deal is? And, you know, if you're a high paid W2 uh, employee somewhere, maybe you're a surgeon or a lawyer or engineer or whatever, something like that. You know, do you exactly have the time, Alex, to start learning everything? You know, what's the what's the learning curve look like on that? You know, books and courses and, you know, um, you know, you know, it, it sometimes it, it appears unpo uh, impossible uh, or maybe you're a small business owner, you know, and you just, you know, you need somebody to take care of this kind of for you. Uh, and that's really where, where we found our niche is that, you know, 
we provide due diligence, right, on our issuers or, or the operators, right? Uh, so the people that are putting the deal together, getting the debt on the deal, doing the, the on-site due diligence, doing the renovations, um, you know, you know, those are the folks that we work with and we onboard them onto our platform. And we are kind of saying to ourselves and to our investors, you know, we did a deep dive. We did criminal background checks. We make sure the LLCs are set up and they're in good standing in each state. We make sure that they, you know, uh, the operator or the issuer, that they actually owned the properties they said they owned and they sold them when they said they sold them. Um, because, you know, anybody can make, uh, with the world of AI and, and, and subscription services, anybody can make a really sexy deal deck look amazing with palm trees and pools and, you know, uh, clubhouses and, you know, put any number that they want to put in. But how do you know that it's legit, right? So that's where we saw a, a need because Alex, we're New Yorkers at heart, my <laughs> brother and I. Um, so, you know, we have a unique lens through which we look at things, you know, people are pretty much guilty till proven innocent. Uh, I'm still working on that. My wife's helping with me with that. But, you know, that's where we found that a lot of people get stuck. And that's where we decided to uh, to jump in. Yeah, fantastic. And that's, again, kind of, you know, something I, I feel is really unique to the the market is that, you know, I've dealt with plenty of people that kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, have kind of a supermarket um, view of, you know, let's say some private placement deals for high techs and startups. Uh, but that really is kind of lacking here. And one of the biggest things for investing in these types of, of projects is due diligence, because you're dealing, you know, with a lot of money, and you talk about how do you learn that stuff. I mean, I've been doing this for, you know, almost 12 years now. And, you know, I would consider myself someone capable of, of reading through and sifting through and, you know, figuring out, you know, what's the smoke, where's the mirror and, you know, where's the actual meat of the deal. But it took a long time for me to, to get to that point. And, you know, for someone like you said, you know, works a W2 job. How do you get that experience? How do you, you know, figure out what to look for? Uh, it's tough. And especially with how nuanced some of these things can be reading through a, you know, a PPM, uh, you know, those things can be, you know, I don't think I've ever seen one less than about 70 pages. I mean, they're big documents that have a lot of stuff in there. And to your point, exactly, uh, you, you can make them look, you know, I've seen them, you know, look extremely sexy. They put the palm tree, they put the clubhouse, they put all that kind of fun stuff in there. But, you know, again, where is, you know, where is the truth in all of this and, and things to look for? So that's kind of one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today because, you know, I've, I've talked due diligence with some people, um, but it's really kind of, you know, it's been a little bit more hyper-focused. I think the last one that we did, we were, I was talking with a company that were, they were really interesting, but it was really focused on, uh, you know, what their uh, model was. And they were um, investing in bridge debt. That's where they would went out. They, they were the bridge debt providers in their fund. For, it was a pooled investment fund. They went out and did bridge debt for commercial real estate and, and syndications, you know, uh, industrial, light industrial, self-storage. It was kind of exactly what you focus on, but they were the bridge debt people. So, what I really want to kind of cover today is due diligence um, and maybe some of the higher points that people can say, okay, here's some things to look for in kind of illustrating, um, you know, what is a good path forward? Um, you know, some of the stuff that I always tell people to look at is, you know, look at the track record of your operators. Um, you know, do you have too many chefs in the kitchen? Are there 10 GPs, you know, why that might cause issues? Um, and I want to kind of get your idea on figuring out, you know, what are some high level things that, you know, are, you know, of great importance. And maybe also, I think importantly, um, you know, so many people put out there, you know, how to do due diligence, and maybe they're missing the mark on some things that they say are super important that aren't as important uh, that people might think of. Because again, one thing that some one person says, 
you know, can certainly be important, but it's not paramount. So maybe let's kind of start from the beginning of, you know, if someone brings you a deal or if you were telling someone um, that just said, hey, I want to get involved in this. What are some things to watch out for? Um, where would you start? Oh, my gosh, Alex, this is like what I talk about every single day, because, you know, a lot of people in the last, say, four or five years have, you know, gotten to the real estate space. They call themselves syndicators because they went to a weekend conference or a week long conference. They learned all the nuts and bolts and they come out and they want to raise money from other people to do these big deals. And I think we're starting to see you starting to see some of them in the news. Right. But there's a lot of them on the off market deals that are taking place right now uh, that got in trouble. They're in over their head. They're out over their skis, whatever little cliche you want to you know, throw in there. That's what's happening, right? But they had a network of people that they could raise money from. They thought, you know, they were doing the right thing and they just didn't have the experience, right? So that's where due diligence comes in. And I've been on enough webinars to know now that every single person has conservative underwriting, Alex. I've never heard one person say, I, I'm going out on a limb here, I have shady underwriting, and this deal is going to be a smoke show, right? Uh, so how do you drill down? So the first thing is really, you know, knowing the operator, you know, if you're not working with a group like ours that does our own internal due diligence, um, then, you know, you really need to talk to people on bigger pockets or, you know, at, at, uh, at conferences and meetups and say, hey, have, who have you worked with? You know, what has your experience been? How are they? Have, uh, how have they communicated with you? How was the process? Was it seamless? Was it professional? How was their investor communications? Are they paying on time every time? Um, are the reports accurate? You know, um, did you go full cycle? How did you feel when you when you called the number and want to talk to somebody? I mean, all these things are you know you would do if you were going to go to the dentist or the doctor, um, you know. And now you're talking about fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollar investments um, with a group that you're probably never gonna, maybe even going to meet in, in in the flesh, right? So, you know, as part of that, you know, on top of all the, you know, say, non-negotiable due diligence tactics like, you know, you want to be in a growth market or that has job growth and population growth and good demographics and, you know, household income and uh, in a one, three and five mile uh, area. You want to know what the new supply is coming on in the one, three, five mile area. You know, is there going to be an absorption problem? You know, all these different things like those are all non-negotiables on the market and, you know, the top down. But from the bottom up, you need to know about the operator. Um, and if you haven't found out anybody that worked with them yet, maybe you can look at their track record, right? Um, you know, maybe someone who's brand new, unless they're a really good friend or a family member, maybe you want to give them a chance. I don't know. Uh, maybe you have, a, you know, some some similarities there. But if you don't know the group, you want to talk to, I mean, you want to look at their track record. How many deals have they gone full cycle on? What were the returns? Um, you know, stuff like that. On the, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, and I was going to say, too, it's it's always good to, you know, those are always kind of the things that I mention to people of, you know, it's like, hey, where do I start? I tell them the exact same thing, but it always comes down to trust and verify. Um, mm. My big thing that I always kind of point out to people is transparency in the people you're investing with. If they're not willing to, you know, give you, you know, say, hey, you know, do you have some investors I can talk to? Um, you know, if, if they've done a good job, they're more than happy to give you people. It's like, yeah, these people absolutely love it. And those people, if they made money, they're always happy to tell other people that they made money too. So, you know, the transparency is something at least that I would kind of hang on that of, again, asking for that from the people, you know, again, the non-negotiables of the market of what you're investing in, because, you know, you don't want to say, oh, yeah, we're building, you know, 300 units in the middle of rural Georgia and there's, you know, one manufacturing plant there. It's like, well, yeah, you have a lot of people now, but what happens when that plant says, you know what, Florida's giving me a good tax break. We're going to move over into this, you know, part of Florida. You know, you got you to be really cognizant of that. So that was just kind of one thing I wanted to add in on that. 
to drill down even further, right? Um, that is huge, right? You want to know, like, if you're not going to travel out to the market and see what the, the block looks like, see what the neighborhood looks like, you know, Google's great, right? You, you can find out a ton of information. You can actually type in the address and kind of walk down the street and see it in real time, you know? Um, are there, you know burnt out shells of buildings like just down the street from the big fancy place that's going in like do you want to be the pioneer i don't know i don't you know maybe you do um but when it comes down to the deal too is you know right now in this rising interest rate environment we have a lot going on you really want to know about the debt right and this is where it gets kind of crazy for people who are trying to be passive they don't understand the debt products what's bridge debt what's agency debt what's the pros and the cons well you know short-term rate caps you know all these things and this is where you really want to dive into the webinar you want to hop on a call with one of their investor relations folks um and that's kind of what we provide over at cityside capital for our investors so that if they have after they watch the, the webinar and go through the PPM and the investor summary, if they have more questions, they want to dive into the deal a little deeper. That's what we love to do here. Um, you know, what's a cap rate? What does cap rate expansion mean? Is there cap rate expansion in the underwriting? Uh, how does that affect returns? Uh, what kind of debt? What What are our options to get out of that debt? You know, in three years or two years? Um, you know, all these things really drive a deal because you're going to get in trouble in real estate if you run out of time or you run out of money. Right. And you want to make sure that you are solving for both of those. You know, I just had a, a call with somebody, uh, one of my investors, and they said, you know, I'm thinking about investing in this deal. They're still doing, you know, um, equity raising, but they closed two months ago. And I said, wait a minute. I said, there's something there. If they're still raising equity after they close the deal on a class A building, sexy, in a great state, in a great market that I invest in myself. Um, I said, what kind of reserves do you think that they have? You know, and he's like, oh, that's a good point, right? I mean, like, so you want to have a well-capitalized, well-run machine. And to your point, Alex, when you said, oh, they're 10 GPs, right? 10 general partners. Like, you know, you want to work with a group maybe that's, you know, in they live, work, and play in the market they invest in, right? Um, if you live in Minnesota, and you're investing in Texas, not the end of the world, but you know, if you have the right team, but you know, if you have all your GPs all over the country and that no, no one is boots on the ground, no one lives in that area, no one can go there in emergency. I mean, that's those are some of the red flags that we see all the time. Yeah, and, and to that point, you know, I would always say people, you know, with with how expansive this type of market is, you know, for me, and again, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I don't necessarily look at that as being, you know, not having someone local to there, but you know, you have to have some type of, um, you know, you have to have some type of replacement for that. You know, did they live there for 15 years and now they just happen to move to Florida because, hey, we got no state income tax. It's really nice out here. We love it. Um, you know, have they had, do they have a big track record of investing in, let's say, five or six deals in that market? And they know it really well. Um, you know, it's it's one of those kind of things where, you know, as much as you can like these people, as much as they do it, do you want, and to your point, you know, do you want to be part of that first experience? Do you want to be part of their, do you want to be part of their learning curve? Um, in that market. And while some people may say yes, and if you have enough capital to, you know, risk that, then awesome for you. You've obviously done well in life. But, you know, to be a good champion of your own capital and understand that these people are going to be stewards of your capital, making sure that you're not kind of, you know, the 101 college course for that particular market is, you know, maybe something good to look for. And again, you know, there are replacements for some of these things, but there are non-negotiables. Um, you, know, you don't necessarily have to live there, but you need experience. You need to have been there or have something that can kind of replace that. Now, 
to kind of transition a little bit, uh, you had mentioned debt, and really that's kind of one of the big focuses of any of these investments right now is debt with, um, you know, one, the velocity of money in the marketplace with how people are underwriting deals, and two, how much it costs to get this stuff. Um, and the loan products are changing, you know, whereas we previously saw stuff where, you know, a five-year runoff was, you know, allowed for a good cap rate expansion. And now you're seeing things where it's getting more common to have bridge debt involved in the deal. You're getting stuff where the, um, you know, the balloons are coming, you know, soon or they're having some windows that are going to kind of compress their timelines a lot. So maybe speak to that on some things that people should watch out for. And again, you know, depending on the operator, these things can be done right. You know, again, like in our pre-call, we talked about, you know, bridge debt, you know, if they have bridge debt, it's not necessarily a deal breaker. You know, if they can use it right, absolutely. It's a great tool for operators to use, but there's some things that need to be looked at. So let's kind of look at the debt side of things on some things to look out for and, and what these things kind of mean. Because again, we'll probably get people on this podcast that are super familiar with all these terms, but maybe you know some of this stuff is a little bit Greek to them. So let's kind of break that down a little bit. Cool. Yeah. So um, before the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates, you know, we had a very low interest rate environment, right? The federal funds rate was hovering around, you know, uh, less than 1%, right? So the traditional way to do and evaluate a project was to secure a, say, a three-year um, variable rate debt uh, with a rate cap, you can buy what's called a rate cap, which really is a ceiling on how much your interest rate can go uh, 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 above what your going in interest rate was. And that saved a lot of people, right? So like, you know, in the event that there was a, uh, a rise in interest rates, you were you, you were capped, and now you can underwrite to that highest rate, uh, and still have, you know, quote, unquote, conservative assumptions. During that three-year period, it's probably interest only. Um, there's probably no prepayment penalty. That's why people use bridge debt because it's very flexible. People can get in and out without a huge defeasance or uh, what's defeasance is like a prepay, prepayment penalty that banks use to recapture some of that early, uh, you know, refinanced, uh, you know, penalty. So, um, so people would go in for those three years. They'd go to do their value add pro um, business plan. So maybe they'd renovate units, add washers and dryers, do some landscaping, some painting, redo the roof, you know, redo the pool. And maybe in 18 to 24 months, they would look to refinance into what's called permanent debt or agency debt, which is Fannie and Freddie um, products. Um, and what it's non-recourse. And now you can refi out of that bridge debt into the permanent fixed rate debt, which uh, now has a 30 year or 35 year amortization where the bridge debt might only have 20, 25, sometimes 30 year amortization. So you bring down your payment, you got a fixed rate debt, and now you're cash flowing. Uh, and that's how, you know, value at projects tended to work. In today's environment, we've had a ton of new folks enter the space because everybody was making money over the last three to five years of real estate. It was up and to the right. So there's a lot of inexperience out there. There's a lot of, you know, syndicators that maybe didn't belong doing bigger deals or something like that. So what happened was everybody didn't no one no one saw the Fed doing this rapid rise in interest rates, right? Up to five and a half percent, five seven five. Um so um, so people maybe didn't buy rate caps and they had a great going in, you know, uh, bridge debt product that's say three and a half or four and a half percent. And now in a matter of a year, they went cash flow negative and they went deep cash flow negative because now they didn't have a rate cap to, to, to save them from the rising interest rate. Uh, and now they have to either do a capital call, which is asking limited partners for more capital to keep the deal afloat, or they got to sell and they got to take a loss. So 
interest, you know, bridge debt is great for a value-add plan. There's no prepayment penalty or very small pre, uh, prepayment penalty a lot of times. Um, very flexible. You can buy a rate cap. They're expensive right now, the rate caps. We're talking on a $20 million deal. You might have something like a 800 to $1.5 million cost, one-time cost uh, to buy a rate cap. So, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just addressing my seat. Okay. So if, if you buy something, you know, on, on the flip side, if you're like, man, I really like fixed rate debt because, you know, maybe in your primary residence, you like fixed rate debt and that's what you use. You know, the problem is people don't go into a deal with fixed rate debt a lot of the times because of that prepayment penalty. So that prepayment penalty or what's called defeasance might be so cost prohibitive if they want to do a refinance in 18 or 24 months or if they want to sell in three years, if it's a five-year hold and they want to, they have an opportunistic sale at year, year three, they might lose millions of dollars in prepayment penalties to the fixed rate loan product. So those are some of the reasons why people use fixed rate debt uh, versus the bridge debt uh, on top of recourse and non-recourse. Yeah, exactly. And that's, 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 there's good points to bring up because a lot of times when people, you know, get into multifamily, it's not their first stab at it. You know, the, the typical linear progression of the investor in real estate is you start in single family, you realize, Hey, this is real estate's awesome. Uh, and then you go, you know, but it's a lot of work to make all my, to make my nut on, you know, going to single family houses, or single family house. Whereas I could put the same amount of work into, you know, potentially investing into 30 or 40 or 50 doors that cash flow roughly the same. And, and be there. But, you know, coming from the single family side, you know, we hear things like gap funding and bridge debt. And it's, you know, immediately kind of one of those things where you're like, whoa, why is this even a part of it? How bad in the arrears are you with the accounting on this deal that you actually need that? Um, and that's one thing I kind of like to demystify a little bit for people. But especially to your point, when you have a debt product that has a huge prepayment penalty, you know, fixed rate is awesome. Um, you know, once you get something cash flowing and repositioned, and you don't necessarily, you know, want to sell if you're cash flow positive. Yeah, it's great. You can lock it up and, you know, it, it's great, you know, hold it for a long time. But the ability to get into a loan product that does not have that is kind of the reason that that is in place in general in the commercial multifamily space. So again, one of the things I like to demystify, especially on, you know, things that people shouldn't shouldn't watch out for, you should absolutely watch out for it. But, you know, if the rate cap buy is going to be such a huge amount of the capital raise, you know, where does that kind of come in? Is that going to go, you know, is that going to directly affect their reserves? Are they raising enough capital to have enough reserves for the project to where it's still going to have the ability to cash flow and reposition like they say they are? Again, things like that are really important to understand from the newer investor side of things. Um, you know, again, kind of coming in from understanding who you're investing with and what they're putting out there. Now, the next thing I'd like to cover is kind of, you know, what things are, you know, put in there. You know, you can make a big, sexy PPM. It can say a lot of things. But, you know, typically within that, they're going to have to give you a range of expected rates of return. Um, they're going to have to state, you know, our expected rate of returns in this market condition are going to range from X to Y. Um, now, I typically always tell people, you know, watch out for stuff that seems too good to be true. And, you know, obviously you don't want to invest in something that's overly conservative. If they're saying that, you know, we expect a three to 4% or three to 5% growth, well, you're barely beating inflation or why are they even putting in this work to something that potentially would have such a low um, expected rate of return. But there's obviously a sweet spot. And again, to preface this, um, you know, there's nothing's guaranteed in life. Like we've seen over the past year, um, you know, we went from, you know, one point where basically money was more or less free. You know, they were giving it out. You know, it's 
a sustainable economy doesn't run on a on a Fed funds rate of one percent. I I was always kind of baffled by that. Uh, you were kind of getting into more realistic, you know, interest rates. But you know, what are some things to look for on that? You know, when they're telling you one thing, let's say you've kind of done your due diligence. Um, you know, what are some things to watch out for? Obviously, if someone says we're going to double your money in twelve months. I would say you're probably better off buying a lottery ticket. But, you know, again, to kind of, you know, what are some things that might be baked in there where you want to really kind of do some more digging or might be just a huge red flag when it comes to what they're telling you these things can perform at? So a couple of things there, like if people are jamming a deal down your throat, uh, trying to get you to, you know, I only have one more spot left. I only have two more spots left or, you know, that's a red flag, right? Because they're starving for money and no one should be doing business like that. Number two is, you know, expected rates of return. If it's too be too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Because look at the, look at it through this lens in today. We're, we're recording this mid-August in 2023, right? Um, there's a wide bid-ask uh, divergence in the market right now. Sellers want, you know, yesteryear's prices and buyers want significant discounts, right? So there's really not a lot of trading right now. So how is somebody going to have this unicorn deal all of a sudden that like nobody else can find, right? Especially if they're not a big player, they're a small player. I don't know. Call me crazy, but you know, again, I'm from New York. Everyone's guilty till proven innocent. Um, that's number number one, right? Understand what the deal looks like. Why is the deal a unicorn? Did they get it at a great basis? Is there a loan assumption? Is there, you know, some sort of seller financing component? You know, like why is the deal a screaming deal? Um, and if you don't understand, you should be able to hop on a call with the operator themselves and say, look, you know, can you walk me through this? You know, because every other deal I've seen, they're looking at 1.8 or 2.0 equity multiples. You're looking at a four or five in uh, 36 months, you know, like, I, I don't understand how that works, you know, and if they can't talk to you about it, or they can't provide any documentation, or they're underwriting, then I, I don't know, me personally, I might have to walk away. So the other thing is, um, you know, right now, you know, looking at, you know, you, you mentioned like three to 5%, why would somebody do that if they can get a risk free 4% in a money market or maybe five and five and change on a T bill, um, which is liquid, right? Um, and that's a great argument right now. Um, you know, where do you want to keep your capital? There's so many options. However, if you have a thesis that, you know, supports your real estate investing, whether it's multifamily for us or self storage or industrial or data centers or hotels, whatever it might be, and you have a, a strong conviction in your investing thesis, then yet, then to me, you need to lean into that, right? And find, uh, find a good deal to do that. The, uh, the other thing I just wanted to touch on real quick is, you know, when you look at, um, assumptions for returns, you know, as a registered representative of a broker dealer, we have our securities licenses. We can't necessarily give you the same return, like uh, sheet you see on these, um, investor summaries, year one, year two, year three, year four, and, and so on. We have to give you what's called a sensitivity analysis, which is a range of possibilities so that you can kind of see the, the worst case scenario, the base case, and, uh, you know, the best case scenario to kind of give you an idea, you know, if cap rates move in different directions, what do your returns look like? If rent growth isn't as robust as we said it was going to be, what do your returns look like? So investors can get a really good idea about how certain metrics will, will move the needle when looking and assessing a return structure. Yeah, no, those are those are really great points to look at because again, it's you know everyone wants to make you know you, you don't put your capital somewhere for it to just lose money against inflation, but understanding kind of where those different caveats come in and what you can expect again is 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 kind of paramount in looking at this. Now, some now, other so, things that I'm sorry, I'm sorry, one more thing. Um, yeah. Also, when returns aren't as sexy as they were maybe 18, 24 months ago. 
you know, how I square this circle for myself and my capital is, look, if you were in the S&P last year in 2020, you know, uh, listen, I still have a 457 plan. I'm still in, I'm still in the stock market myself. But if you had cash and say an S&P fund, uh, $100,000, say at the beginning of 2022, and at the end of 2022, you lost 20%, right? Now your capital account shows $80,000, right? In 2023, say it goes up by 20% and you feel really good about that. You're like, man, I went down 20% last year and now I'm, I'm right back where I am. I, I, I got 20% now. Well, 20% on 80,000 is 96,000, right? So if you keep that in mind, right, just small little shifts like that uh, can really affect your, your capital count and your basis. In real estate, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but those it's not marked to market every single day like stocks are. So the, the risk is hopefully you're with a good operator and a good asset, right, that you don't have a loss, you know, that's going to compound your problems with uh, your returns. No, that those are definitely great, great things to look at. And I always try to, you know, at least personally look at that is that, you know, you lose, you know, again, you lose 20% on 100,000, you're at 80, you have to make up more than 20% to get back to your original basis of starting point. So, you know, again, looking at that, and I think that kind of leads into, you know, how these people are analyzing deals, you know, you want experience, but the problem is, is that you could have a decade of experience in commercial multifamily right now. And again, you're looking at something that just goes up into the right, like you said. Um, you know, you could basically throw stuff at the wall for the past 10 years and you really had to be doing some stuff wrong to, you know, miss the mark. Um, it's really only in the last, you know, 24 months. And even, you know, even going th and the crazy thing is even going through COVID, uh, you know, with how terrible that was. I mean, realistically, we only saw a huge dip for maybe like five months, um, you know, you could still have underwritten a deal during that time. And if, you know, two year run out, you probably made money. Um, so again, it the, the due diligence on the deal itself is paramount. Um, you know, because even looking at, you know, operators, again, they could have a decade of experience, but no one's really had a whole lot of hardships until now, you know, the fun, the market hasn't fundamentally changed. We hadn't seen interest rates really fluctuate more than maybe a point in, you know, the better part of 10 years. It's, it's something that I really like to point out to people is that you can have experience and you can be comfortable, but you know, numbers don't lie. Um, or I mean, so long as that the people aren't making them up, um, to make them lie for them, you know, you really need to look at this stuff, um, you know, very pragmatically when you analyze a deal. And that kind of leads me into how these things are paid out. There's a lot of different ways that deals will state that they're going to pay out to investors. Um, you know, the thing that you'll see a lot of times is you'll see a preferred rate of return. Uh, you might see something like a certain amount of cap on how much a preferred rate of return can pay out where it's saying, hey, you're going to pay a return on capital of X up into a certain point. And then after that, if you get there, it's going to be a return of capital. There's a lot of different ways that they can structure this and small words can make a big difference in that. So, you know, I kind of have my own opinions about that. I don't necessarily think it's right for me to give it being in the position we are at, at Advanta. Um, but, you know, what are some thoughts that you have on ways that, you know, people can get into trouble with with things like that? You know, small words like return of versus return on. Where do those things kind of fit in a benefit for the investor? Why you might want to turn away from something and things to look at when it comes to how these things are actually paid out to people? So yes, those small word, small words do make a big difference. However, there are there are operators that I know that are big operators, very successful operators, and their goal is to return your capital, return of capital as soon as possible, right? Uh, so whether it's through 
cash flow distributions monthly and then they do a refinance in like a year or two they want to return your capital asap and then they can start enjoying some of the cash flow as well and that model works for them right but as long as you know look going into the deal that they're returning my capital to me you know uh paying a pref right and then uh then we're going to start splitting the you know the cash flow down further all along other operators will do a return on capital. So let's, let's do an example, right? Say you have $100,000. And so I'll give you an example of a deal that, I, that I'm a part of right now. Um, so we have $100,000 invested. We've been get, it's, it's an 8% preferred return, meaning that the first 8% of cash flow has to go to LP investors. And then anything above that 8% gets split 70-30. 70% to the limited partners or the passive investor. 30% goes to the general partner or the people doing the deal. We had this deal for two years. We've been getting all 8%, right? So we haven't had to have a catch up. And now we just had a refinance event where we got returned to us 32%. So I just got $32,000 back into my account, right? That was a return of capital though, right? That's how it was written in the PPM for a, a, a refinance event. So now my capital account goes down to 68,000, right? So going forward, my 8% preferred return isn't on $100,000, it's on $68,000. So once I hit my preferred return on $68,000, then the cash flow gets split 70-30. And we, we just got a, um, a quarterly report from them, and they're saying that the cash flow is gonna be in the low to mid-teens, right? So even though they're returning capital to you, right? There's a higher internal rate of return because of the return of capital. You can velocitize that money and put it someplace else now. Um, but as long as you understand the terms behind that and why it's doing that, then you're in, you're, you're in a great position. Yeah, and exactly. And that kind of comes back a, a really good point that you kind of alluded to is understanding, you know, you need to understand the deal, but you need to understand your reasoning for wanting to be in the deal. Do you have money that you want to have there? You know, again, for the $100,000 example, do you want to have that $100,000 park somewhere where it is going to be for a while? Or do you are you of the assumption in your investing strategy that you say, hey, you know, I'm happy to make that pref on the, you know, the 8% preferred return on this for a certain amount of time getting that capital back out because I think another thing that people need to understand is that these are, you know, unlike, you know, many things, these are relatively illiquid investments. You know, you buy into these things, they have a lockup that unless you have some type of extenuating circumstance, you know, your money's in there for the duration of, you know, the deal until it gets refied, sold, or you get a return of your entire capital account. So having the ability, again, this needs to go into your strategy because their strategy is just as important as theirs is, if not maybe a little bit more so of saying, hey, you know, a return of my capital is great because now, you know, I might get to my 70-30 split a little bit sooner because, you know, 8% preferred, preferred return on, you know, 68 is a lot easier to make than a hunt roll. Easier, maybe not a lot. Um, so being able to have that cash, a chunk of cash flow come back out to me and be able to put that into another deal to help with diversification and other things like that can work very well. And again, I've talked to some people that, you know, so long as that it's being disclosed in a way that you understand what's happening, um, that is, again, important because those small words make a difference. But understanding that sub doc and saying, hey, OK, you know, this all of this stuff is alluding to a return on capital. And then, you know, when they have their you know breakdown of returns, it says return of that should be a red flag. You know, if everything is kind of alluding towards, you know, these long-term cash flow metrics and being in a deal for a long time and they're saying, "Oh, we're going to start trying to return your capital to either, you know, reduce the amount we're paying the preferred return on or try to, you know, getting rid of is maybe a strong term, but you know, you know, reduce the amount of investors we have by paying them out, again, not just forcing you out and taking your money, but, you know, 
getting them paid out, those are things that you should look into as well. Now, one thing that I do like to, uh, you know, look at with this and it, you know, we didn't really kind of get into it. One thing I'm a big proponent of is looking at, you know, who is drafting this paperwork as well. Um, you know, attorneys that have a lot of experience, well, maybe that's, I'll get a little ahead of myself. Um, we can talk about that in a second, but, um, to your point of, you know, things that are, are mentioned in, uh, you know, the actual returns, what are some things that you would say are, you know, problematic? You know, I said, you know, if it's all alluding to one thing, but doing another, what are some things that you might say, Hey, you know, if they're, if it looks like this, but it goes like this or things to look for in a, in a set of sub docs for an investor, is there any kind of red flags that jump out if they're, you know, kind of alluding to a certain strategy, but you know, it's a return of versus return on that people should look out for. So me personally, I don't love deals that have a refinance um, baked into the return assumptions, right? Um, if, a, if, a re, if a refinance occurs in a value-add deal, say, or a light value-add deal, even a heavy value-add deal, any kind of deal, if you have to rely on a refinance in year, say, two or three for the assumptions to work out, that to me is a, is a problem, right? Because think about if you bought a deal two or three years ago, and now you need to refinance today at today's rates, right? That deal is probably going to blow up and there's going to be capital calls or they might lose the deal or you might lose money or something like that. Because if a refinance occurs, that is a cherry on top, right? That is just a, that's what we call a home run, you know, and that's just amazing, right? Because the deal should work without the refinance. That's number one. Number two is, you know, standard underwriting a couple of years ago, just two, three years ago before the rates started to rise. You know, you might have reserves of, say, 250 in multifamily for $250 per unit uh, per year. And that was standard, right? Like, you know, that was okay. You know, but right now you might need 400 or $500 in reserves per unit per year. Um, insurance costs across the entire country are insane right now. So if you underwrote a deal using very, you know, lackadaisical insurance assumptions, you might be having a pause in distributions right now because they're trying to escrow money for their next for their next insurance policy renewal. Um, so all these things, right, is why you need to work with guys and girls, right, just groups, issuers, operators that understand the metrics. And uh, one of my mentors, Russell Gray, says, you know, follow the math and the math will tell you what to do, right? Uh, but you have to have, you know, garbage in is garbage out. You have to have good numbers going in to have good numbers on the way out. Yeah, and that's a really good thing. That that's a very easy analogy for people coming from single family to multifamily to understand. If you're investing with someone, you know, and again, you know, and it kind of gets back into you know, investing with other people, maybe not your own deal, uh, but you know, let's say you have someone that's investing in a few houses and looking for money. If they're you know basing their assumptions on being able to refinance out of hard money, you know, that's a big assumption to make. You know, you're again, you're banking on the ability for that to happen. Yeah, you could maybe qualify for it right now, or maybe why couldn't you qualify? Why why are you doing it like this and having to go into it risky, trying to make it less risky in the future? Again, I think that's an easy thing for people to understand, and it does definitely cross the bridge of going from single to multifamily pretty easily. Um, you know, making those assumptions and baking your returns in on an assumed refi. Um, I don't necessarily – I can't think of a single scenario where that would really kind of be something that would make me feel good um, investing capital of saying, okay, you're, you're, you're assuming that this is going to work. Um, you know, and Alex, if it's yeah. a single family deal, right? Say it's a hard money deal. You're using your retirement account to – you know, you have a, good, a great friend that has this great flipping business, right? 
and say he, you know, I don't know, whatever the terms are, I'm going to make them up right now. Say it's, I don't know, 10, 10% and two points, right, for a year, uh, a, a year term. And he's looking to refinance in, out, out of your basically, you know, private money lending uh, to bank financing in a year. Well, right now, I don't know, mortgage rates on a single family, non-owner occupied deal, I'm guessing are seven and a half or greater, right? Huh? So in his little pro forma, in their pro forma to you, they should be assuming eight and a half or nine percent rates. And if the deal still pencils, then I'd say, man, maybe that's a good deal, right? But if he he or she is assuming maybe six and a half or seven or right on the right on the cusp of what they are today, to me, that's not good enough. There's no there's no risk premium for me to say yes, this is a great deal. Yeah, and and to get a little bit farther into you know understanding the deal as as a, you know because we're coming up, we could. By the way, this conversation is going. We can do this for another hour, uh, but my uh, producer is going to chime in and say we got to cap it at about <laughs> forty-five. But um, you know, we kind of a, a recurring theme is you know operators understanding what they're doing, uh, and that comes from everything to how they're putting the deal together, what they're you know why they're selecting the deal and the area that they are, what the positioning is, what the debt is. But one thing specifically that we get into a lot here at Advanta, obviously, is retirement accounts, and. One big thing when it comes to, you know, specifically to retirement account investing um, is understanding how the 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 tax write-offs flow through. So within any of these big, you know, syndications, typically you're going to see things like uh, accelerated depreciation, cost segregation analysis. Um, if they're not putting those kind of things in there, definitely ask why. Um, you know, are they trying to save to get that, you know, not pay for a cost seg to get to that 250 reserve per door? Um you know, that might be something you really want to ask why um, they're doing that. So the the tax planning side of things is, you know, huge in this because it's not how much money you make, it's how much money you keep. And if you're paying it all out to Uncle Sam, uh, you know, great, you made 10%, but after taxes, you're making two, you lost to inflation by two points. That's, you know, easy math. Um, but one thing I've specifically seen is in you know, a, a deal provider might have a lot of experience, but maybe they don't have experience accepting in retirement plan investors. Well, the actual syndicators of the deal can choose how they allocate the uh, pass-through write-offs to their investors. Um, and I've seen more common, especially with more people getting into it, that the retirement plan investors, they just assume that they're immediately tax-exempt. And they don't allocate the write-offs on K-1 to pass through to the retirement plan investors. When absolutely, if your IRA is invested in a deal that has debt involved, which let's be honest, they're not buying these things cash. They're they're finance. That's you know again a main a main component of what we talked about. Um, you know, you either need to one ask, hey, why not? And two, say, hey, you need to allocate this to this because IRAs can be involved in taxable events when there's debt underwriting involved in the deal. If it's a pass through, you know, these things aren't C corps. And I could go on a huge rabbit hole to that extent, but that's something to ask about um, because you want to make sure, especially if you're using a retirement plan, you know, individual flesh and blood investors, you know people with pulses, they're allocating those write-offs towards. But IRAs, especially if you're doing it, you don't want to run into an event where all of a sudden you got the IRS knocking on your door wondering why you never filed 990T for three years when you had rates had returns being paid out to you. So that's definitely something that is worth asking. Now, is there ever any event where you would think that a, a, a syndicator, again, and some of them just don't realize, they think IRA, they think tax-free, which again, is not a huge leap to make. Uh, but is there any reason that a syndicator would not apply 
you know, the the pass through write offs from a cost seg and accelerated depreciation um, or the amortization tables equally among people, um, maybe kind of get into that. because I think that's, again, kind of a good way to bring this in for a landing is understanding kind of how those returns come back to you and, and you know, why you're getting certain things and other people may not be. So, Alex, I do not have a Ph.D. in IRAs, but from my <laughs> understanding, if you use a self-directed and the real estate deal you do uses leverage, you're subject to what's called a UBIT uh, tax or UDFI, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, but a solo 401k under the 401k rules does not have that debt requirement um, for the UDFI and UBIT. So. Correct. Yeah, so you could, as a, as a self-directed, uh, you know, investor, you really kind of want to have that question answered. Like, hey, am I going to get a K-1 or is the entity that I invest through going to get a K-1 so I can at least have the optionality of using some of those losses, some of those real estate losses to use against my either capital gains or the UDFI and UBIT taxes? Uh, valid question. And I would say that's where you need to walk through and really kind of pay attention to the PPM, right? Because everything in the whole deal should be spelled out in the PPM with a private placement memorandum, right? There's an operating, you're going to get three documents when you do a uh, syndication. You're going to get a PPM, private placement memorandum, an OA or an operating agreement for the entity that's buying the structure, and also the subscription documents, which means how much do you want to invest in this deal and through what uh, facility? Are you going to use cash or IRA or whatever? Though, so those are the three documents. But in the PPM, it should be spelled out. If you do not see that on how depreciation benefits are going to be allocated, that's a phone call to the operator or the issuer or someone if you're working with Cityside Capital. Hey, Tim, you know, I see that there's nothing in the PPM or it's not clear. Can you help me understand? Uh, because, yeah, you know, if you have a tax strategy and then, uh, and you're investing with your self-directed or your solo 401k, you want to understand how this is going to affect you. The other thing I'm going to stack on top of that, Alex, is some of the funds that we raise capital for uh, here at Cityside Capital, we give our investors the option if they're using a self-directed IRA to be taxed as a, a read, right? So now they'll they'll receive a 1098 um, instead of a K-1, and it'll be just simple interest, basically. So um, every year, the cash flow will be treated as basically simple interest, and then now you're not subject to the uh, UDFI and the UBIT taxes. Yep. So also a great question to you know operators and issuers, hey, can I be taxed as, can I elect to be taxed as a REIT instead of you know just a standard self-directed IRA? Yeah, and again, that kind of illustrates um, you know the benefit of going through someone like what you have put in that kind of helps to give you the, that option in you know some of that thing that understand it to you know be able to help out with and one thing I would kind of say just to kind of you know to, to bring this in for a landing is that you know if someone has never dealt with IRAs you know there's 37 trillion dollars worth of retirement plan assets in the United States if they're now just opening up to IRAs um, you know and again they maybe just never really you know understood that you could do this um, it's becoming more knowledgeable and you know by the efforts of people like Advania we're trying to educate people that you can do this but you know where they just um, you know where they just did, didn't realize that IRAs could be investors in these deals. Are they are their capital sources drying up? Are other people saying, "Hey, we don't want to invest in this deal"? Um, you know, just things to look at. You know, if they're opening themselves up to more new sources of capital, are they hitting home runs and they just want to open this up and get more capital to get more velocity deal flow in their stack? Are they having harder times raising capital and they just haven't experienced these types of investors before? Just some things to look at on a high service level. More often than not, I've seen investors and, and uh, syndicators just weren't really aware that IRAs could be plugged in in this form and fashion. Um, but again, you always need to be very analytical with this. And 
just because that's what normally is the question, the answer to that question doesn't mean that that is always the case. And, you know, you want to make sure you're not in that always, you know, not always the case bucket. Um, But, you know, we're kind of hitting up on 45 minutes. Um, I think we've covered a lot of great information. I really appreciate you being on today. Um, So, again, if people want to, you know, again, have more of a one-stop shop for being able to have someone that's done the due diligence, um, you know, kind of has a, a list of vetted deals that they can look at and, you know, deal with someone that's licensed to do that, that's really kind of the service that you offer at CitySide Capital, right? Uh, it is. And just to be clear, so my compliance officer doesn't kill me, I'm not making any recommendations. I'm not giving any, any advice, right? This is just, you know, the information that I have acquired, and I'm just trying to pass it along to you. Uh, but obviously, you have to do your own due diligence. But yes, CitySide Capital, we work with 10 different operators across the United States, across three different asset classes, multifamily, self-storage, and industrial triple net leases. Uh, and we help cash, you know, retail investors, IRA investors, and 1031 investors, you know, um, come on into, you know, these large your institutional quality deals. Great. And uh, if they want to get more information or want to get plugged in with you, how can they reach you? Yeah. So our, our uh, website is citysidecap.com. I'm on all the major uh, social media platforms. And our phone number is 516-521-7762. All right, Tim. Well, thank you very much for being on with us today. My name is Alex Perny, as always, with the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Thank you very much for being with us today, and we'll see you on the next one. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of The Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.